Welcome to the Exodus Cry podcast, where we have honest conversations around exploitation, trafficking, sexual culture, and justice. Hello, and welcome back to the Exodus Cry podcast. Today, we have with us Caroline Pugh-Roberts, who is a survivor of human trafficking and now works full-time with victims of sexual exploitation. She has received the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal for her work in this area, as well as the Hope Award and John Robinson Awards. We're very grateful to have her with us on our podcast today. Thank you for watching. To start out, maybe you could tell us about the trafficking situation happening in Canada. It's exploding, especially since COVID, and I was very frightened about that. Um, A lot of kids at home, a lot of folks losing their jobs, and familial trafficking has always existed, but I really saw it expand exponentially as time went by with COVID. It's a crime that a lot of people get away with, and more and more people are catching on. And what we primarily see despite separate from the familial trafficking is what we call the lover boy slash Romeo pimp scenario and organized crime is getting bigger but it's primarily the lover boy scenario and how what they do is they find a girl woman who is vulnerable and everybody everybody on this planet wants love and that's what they sell I watched a, a film of a trafficker in jail and he in his orange jumpsuit was looking down at the table, and the interviewer said to him, how do you do it? And he lifts his head up, and he looks her straight in the eye, and he says, I sell them the dream. And it's that easy um, with vulnerable women and boys who want love. And they tell them, you know, I get you, no one else does, I love you, no one else does. And we call it the love bombarding, and it's also done through material goods, as in um, handbags are a big one, the nails getting done, uh, clothing. They'll also, when you're 16 and somebody's telling you how wonderful you are and they're supplying you with alcohol and drugs, it's heady stuff. Mm. You don't know who you are at 16, although I certainly thought I did. (laughs) Right. Um, And they fall in love real quick, just like I did. For myself, I had been married to a South African who was a registered Thai massage therapist. And he had gone to Thailand to get more education and the tsunami hit. And he disappeared. I then spent the next seven years looking for him. And, but at the, mo- at the time, the Thai authorities sent me photos of bodies that had been in the water for weeks. I was working with the Thai authorities, Canadian consulate. And it was horrific. And I didn't find him. I then lost my mother and my two best friends within a period of six months. With hindsight, I was struggling with un- undiagnosed complicated grief and, and undiagnosed clinical depression. Mm-hmm. My best friend's, well, my friend's husband introduced me to his friend. I now know they were ulterior motives. But um, that's what made me vulnerable, and he did the love bombarding scenario. He came to me, and he was, they're clever. They, they're not, but they are. He told me he would take care of everything. It would be okay, and... I was such a mess emotionally, I needed that, and he, he picked up on that instantly. I'd come home, and he would have gotten into my apartment and debris stereo equipment, Tommy jeans, um, and I fell for it. I did. I straight up fell for it, and uh, that's what we see mainly in Canada, although it, it is starting to change. 
It's interesting because when you talk about this issue of trafficking, especially child trafficking, there's no shortage of men out there who say things like, you know, let me get a hold of these guys. Where can I go rescue these girls? There's um, these exuberant displays of enthusiastic interest in rescuing people from trafficking. But these same men valorize people like Andrew Tate, mm-hmm. not realizing that most trafficking is not somebody being abducted, nope. brought into a cage, and sold out from there. Um, most of the trafficking is what you're describing Mm -hmm. is these more sophisticated methods of coercing and manipulating people through insidious means and um, to get them to comply with going along with your trafficking agenda. So it's, it's interesting to me to see that dynamic at work. And I think it just illuminates how important it is to bring understanding to this way of pimping, prostituting people out, trafficking. It's the guy who appears to be nice, charismatic, successful, powerful, wealthy. Uh, he, he appears to be the envy of men, the apogee of the male existence. Good word. <laughs> and, um, And yet underneath that, the means by which he's gaining validation for his masculinity and sexual affirmation and generating all this finance is by tricking people, deceiving them into prostituting for themselves. And so I'm really glad that you're touching on this because it's just something that's so relevant right now in our culture around this whole issue. And what we have right now is a situation where on one hand, you have a movie like The Sound of Freedom Mm -hmm. that is sounding the alarm on this very narrow version of trafficking. And on the other hand, there's this Andrew Tate figure who is held up and valorized as this man's man that's going to tell it the way it is and speak to the rest of men that don't have a voice and feel devalued and are reacting to the anti-male sentiment that they perceive in the culture. And Andrew Tate is their knight in shining armor. In reality, most trafficking is not happening in this con. This is not most trafficking. This is a very, very, and yet, and, most trafficking is happening in this way that isn't even perceived as trafficking yes. by people. So saying all that to say, I really appreciate what you're sharing about this lover boy. Is there any further insight that so, you can give us into your experience yes, with that? I just want to touch on something you said, which I think is really important because people don't see that trafficking is that is that way. But most of the victims, that word trafficking isn't even in their vocabulary. So they don't even know they're being trafficked. Right. And they could also have been swayed by the Tates of this world into thinking that this is the normal and this is how it should be. So 
yeah, they don't know. And then when people say, why doesn't she leave? Well, what's she leaving? Something she doesn't even know she needs to leave until later down the line when things are just too brutal. Um, yeah, so I was actually started being trafficked through the strip bars. Now, when I was four, six was my first sexual assault. At 14, I was attacked and raped. At 16, I was attacked and raped. And at 18, I was attacked and raped. So I had subconsciously learned that my body was not mine, that it was for the taking. And I hear this from the woman a lot. They're going to take it anyways. I might as well charge for it. So I kind of get, I do get the logic, even though it's not logical. Um, but from their perspective and, and mine at the time too. So that also is how it happened to me. So for a lot of women, there's history, there's past history. They, I hear people say, well, I just beg. When you pan or beg on the street, your kids are hungry, you get maybe $20 at the end of the day, it's not going to feed them. And what people don't realize is that these women, how many men have come up to them and said, you know, I'll give you an extra 40 if you just do this. So even people judging them for doing it don't realize that they're going to be approached if they're not doing it. Mm. You're a target just by existing as a female or a young person on the street. So it's this predator-prey dynamic yep. at work. And it's hard not to, I would imagine it's hard not to develop a worldview that's centered around this predator-prey dynamic if your whole life experience has been fighting off aggressive, abusive, predatory males from your earliest um, memories of childhood. Yeah. And... uh so having gone through some of the something having endured some of these assaults against yourself and leading up to that moment that you were lured and coerced through these manipulative and deceptive means into the sex industry at what point when you were in the industry did it start to be did you start did it start to become aware to you that this was damaging to your own psyche you know, psyche my soul yeah yeah your soul your spirit your body i had been, i had been trafficked by him for eight years and i had cried every single day for eight years um so prior to that because of my past trauma i had been an addict and i stopped cold turkey i shook for a year i couldn't hold a cup of coffee but i had stopped one of one night I woke up, he woke me up. I had to sleep on the floor because I always had to be with an eyesight and he put a crack pipe in my face. And he said, if you don't take a hit off this, I will never let you sleep again. As an addict, one is too much and one is too many. And I was right back where I started. Um, people always say, why didn't she leave? I'm going to tell you briefly about trying to leave. Remember, I still thought I was in love. Okay. I still thought he loved me because I didn't have the word trafficking in my vocabulary <clears throat> so i ran to a woman's shelter they could hear him screaming because i called <clears throat> and i got there and they told me they had no room for me <sighs> who am i going to go back to <laughs> he was mad and at that point he said to me i can no longer have a roof we were in motels anyways but he would make me live and work out of a car and some nights i got lucky and it was a porta poo you know after that went on for, I don't know, months and months and months, he allowed me back into the hotels. And I phoned the shelter again, at which point they took me in. But he knew where I'd been from the previous attempt to escape and went there and threw what was left of my belongings at the building. They, through their cameras and microphone, told him to leave the premises or they were calling the authorities, which he did. 
But then they came and got me and told me I was no longer allowed to stay there because my presence there endangered all the other women. They then moved me to another shelter. Two days into that stay, I fell ill with what was to become a long battle with colitis. And we see this with a lot of the women once they are able to exit physical ailments, catching up with them. So I was put into the hospital and I was there for a few days. Once I got out, I I was on the hospital stairs, uh, front door with a quarter and nowhere to go because the shelter had evicted me because I was away for more than two nights. Mm. There was no one in the world they had left to call but him. So the whole cycle started again. And and like they like to burn. I have cigarette burns all over me. Um, All my toes were broken at one point when I tried to leave. I had my nipples amputated. I then found out about the Salvation Army because prior to that, I had my act together. I didn't need to know about social service agencies. And there are a lot of people out there in the same position. So I went there and he found me. Remember, I still thought I was in love. I now know that he was in love with roughly $350,000 a year. But that took education and two years once I was out to understand that. I went back three times, and the last time he chased me up the fire escape. An alert security guard picked up on that and got me behind a locked door. A social worker came to me and said, something's going on. And I didn't disclose because I still didn't understand, but I said, I need help. They then got me back to the first shelter, but they literally had to form a human circle around me to get me out of the building and into the taxi safe. I was there. Now, I don't know what, how it works here, but you've got 24 days in a shelter. How do you get your life back together when you have the clothes on your back and an addiction? And for the first time in eight years, I was able to exhale. All I wanted to do was sleep, but you got to get your stuff together. So I really, really was motivated and did a lot of work. And I got very, very lucky. They allowed me to stay there for four months as opposed to 24 days. And where I am to get um, government housing, I had to have a letter stating I was living with my abuser. My abuser was my landlord. I saw women go back to their abusers slash traffickers who'd been on life support because they couldn't get that letter. I, in my infant wisdom, thought I'll go to the motels and ask them. All of them said no except one who then blackmailed me and said, if if I don't give him money, he's going to tell the trafficker. So I had to go back into the bars without my trafficker to pay this guy, which I did. But um, he granted me a boon. don't know if he took sympathy, but he gave me a handwritten letter. I then got housing. My The day they gave me my keys, I wept with such gratitude that the woman had to come from behind the desk to hold me up physically. Mm-hmm. When I walked in, I didn't have a fork. I didn't have a spoon. I didn't have a pillow. I didn't have a blanket. I just slept on the floor. But you know what? I had keys that were mine. Two months into that stay, I found a, a bag on my um, balcony that I'd never seen before. I opened it up, and inside it were rubber gloves, duct tape, and a gun. Now, he was heavily associated with organized crime, but it was the lover boy scenario, but he, had, he was associated. And I've met guys that have tattoos on their arms. It's a circle with a rat inside it and a line saying, rats are a dying breed. So I still didn't understand, but I knew that I was being warned. So I called the police, because what was I going to do with this gun? I didn't want it. And they came... They weren't the least bit perturbed. They said, oh, we find men with these kits all the time. It's a rape kit or a home invasion kit. This is women's reality. Every day, walking around the street, because you don't have to be anybody. No, no, not. 
for guys to have these kits and come at you. Um, so, of course, I phoned housing, and I did not disclose at the time to the police. I said, I don't know where it came from. I said, you got to get me out of here. you got to get me out of here, which took another, I think it was six months. But for another six months, I lived in abject terror, thinking I was hearing sounds on the balcony that turned out to not be there, but I didn't know that. So when people say, why doesn't she leave? I tried. Mm-hmm. It took two years to get away. Um, and we see this all the time. There, there are, not only are there not enough services, but there's actually obstacles to, to people leaving. And I think it's probably even harder for men because so society shames them even more because it is men buying men. It's not what right. people think, oh, women do it too. That's rare. It's yeah. rare. Yeah, it's interesting to hear kind of the the bigger picture of your story because there's such a clear progression of a downward spiral. And, um, you know, so I, I, I think for the vast majority of people who wind up in the sex industry through for one reason or another, it started with childhood sexual yep. abuse. Uh, I'm, I don't think I've met anyone who has been trafficked that it didn't start there. I'd have to really search my memory. Um, but the vast majority, it starts there. And so some kind of trauma is invoked at that age that, you know, and just kind of putting the pieces together of your story that then leads sometimes to, um, substance addiction and, uh, codependency to, to numb the, the pain of that violation. And then that numbing of the pain through substance abuse ends up, um, intensifying the vulnerability hundred percent and, and, um, exacerbating the vulnerability at an even greater level. And so it, it makes it an even more dangerous situation. In just a few decades, porn has invaded the screens of nearly every household with an internet connection. But few people know the truth about the multi-billion dollar industry behind this content. Action! Our documentary miniseries Beyond Fantasy rips the mask off of the porn industry. It takes viewers straight into the belly of the beast and brings them face to face with some of the biggest porn producers and performers as they describe, in their own words, an industry that profits from ethical violation, coercion and abuse. The chances, the risks that they take are the deal that they make with the devil when they come into this business. It's a hard-hitting series that exposes the porn industry like no other film, but keep in mind that it does include the use of blurred porn video clips, so we encourage viewer discretion. You can watch the Beyond Fantasy series for free on YouTube or at beyondfantasy.com. It's interesting that we live in this culture in which child people who have been abused people who are, have a drug addiction are and and people who have um gone into the sex industry for some reason are considered throwaways mm-hmm. um and uh we see this manifest in different ways in different cultures um for some cultures if you were abducted 
um, we, I remember being in Moldova, they told us stories of girls who had been taken from their village sold into prostitution. I mean, trafficked in the most overt black and white yeah. egregious sense. And when they were rescued and brought back to their village were totally ostracized and shamed because of no fault of their own, but what had happened to them. So there's some deeper psychology that we struggle with as humans when it comes to these issues of treating people like damaged goods instead of treating people like priceless, valuable human beings worthy of compassion and empathy and needing to be fought for. It's interesting that you say that because um, I talk a lot about how certain cultures place the honor of a village inside a woman's vagina. And when people from that village rape her, they ostracize her, she's um, shunned, she's sent away and never allowed to be there. I don't understand the concept. I, I can't, literally can't grasp it. I can't. Um, I, yeah, so the kind of, to me, that's the same sort of thing. It really is. Because how can the honor of a village depend on that woman? Yeah. It, it, it boggles my mind. It all starts with like the value that we place on humans. And you have cultures that have a little, very low value for human life. So they become like very hierarchical, hierarchical, and also like very, um, you know, um, class-driven um, societies. So if you are in this category, you're valuable, but if you're here, your life is worthless, that kind of thing. And so it feels like a big part of like the work that needs to be done is the work putting the emphasis on the value, the intrinsic value of human life to elevate that so we, that we can see collectively as a human family that if anyone suffers, no matter how high or low they are in the social wrong of society, that it's, a, in, that it's an infraction against and a violation of all of us. Of humanity. Of humanity. Yeah. And so I think for me, like that's, that's something that really stands out, like hearing you share some of your story is the internalized um, feelings of a lack of self-worth that kept driving you down this path. I have to wonder, though, when you talk about the value of humans, I think it's more so the less value of women on this planet. Because, I mean, there's infanticide generally tends to be on girls. Uh, Girls are not wanted, and they're seen as a burden. And they are sold even in dowries in some countries. He has to give lobola or cows and things for women. They are sold even in marriage. So, and you don't see that happening to men. Well, it's rare. It's rare again. Okay, um, and it's on the woman that the shame of the family, the honor of the family rests. So, when you think about it, it's it's really it feels like such an assault against the very foundational aspects of our existence. So I, at one time, spent a lot of time thinking about this idea um, of how we all have come into this world completely dependent on a woman. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I thought about that when I was really confronting 
a lot of the deeper sexist attitudes that seem homogenous throughout the world and just trying to find some kind of reference point for a lot of these men that were very overtly misogynist. Mm -hmm. The Tates. And mm -hmm. yeah, like, okay, at the very least, let's acknowledge that you came into this world completely dependent on a woman. I'm so, so glad you said that. <laughs> so the idea uh, being that women are the womb of all humanity and, and yet are uniquely under assault and um and it's such a uh, a violation of beauty and um and you know when you look out at like all the different things that are we're talking about trafficking but there's female genital mutilation you mentioned infanticide yeah. um so just i would say in every society around the world there's a higher value placed on boys and men than there is on women. I co-facilitated the Sex Buyers Accountability Program for over a decade now. And at the end, I, without fail, I've had at least one guy come up to me often. There's tears saying, I'm sorry, I didn't know. To what you just said, I will say to them, you know, I get that we don't know what we don't know. And I get that when we know better, we do better. But what I don't get is why you didn't know. Women, as you just said, are at least 50% of this planet. And we gave birth to 100% of it. Why didn't you know? But again, to that end, we start the day with videos on how men are socialized to be the alpha male. No male is, is born hating women. No one is. When you walk out the front door, there's all these images of women and they're expected if they put the, uh, the cologne on, they get the girl. All of that stuff. So everything is geared towards her getting her. And when we look at porn now, I think 88% of it now is, has got extreme violence. And our male youth are getting their sex education there. They weren't born thinking like that. They're getting their sex education there. And then the girl, so they're being taught that that's what love looks like because they think sex can be love. And the girls are being taught to expect to be hurt because that's what love is from the pornography. Right. I think... Um, 75% of all porn is now watched on a phone. 95% of all youth have one. Um, it's atrocious. And also, there's a, a wave of liberal feminism. It's the third wave now that is teaching our youth that pornography and selling of sex, the prostitution of a person, is empowering. Right. Having said that, pornography never goes away. And we know that the majority of the women in there have been coerced slash traffic pimped. So even when she's dead, men are still masturbating to her rape. Okay, they can never escape it. When I speak to um, university classes, because the boys slash men, they are at the age where they can purchase. And I will say to them, and I will get, I'll say to the guys, hey, how many of you think prostitution and porn is okay and it's empowering? They all raise their hands. And I have a pregnant pause and I go, how many of you men will marry one? And I'm saying to the girls, look, not a hand goes up. It's an agenda. It's a, I, I call it the patriarchal agenda, okay? And having said that, they are socialized that way, okay? But it makes changing laws very difficult because a lot of the people with the authority and the ability to do significant change legally and, and, and at the law level are purchasers. And we see this all the time. And it's a tough battle. It's a very tough battle. Yeah, it's to to the larger point that we're talking about. If you look at 
pornography as an example of a completely unregulated industry run amok with um, a group of predominantly men who have little to no accountability where where does that go and when you look at at pornography it appears to be an embodiment of this larger misogynistic um women hating worldview it's not something that we like to acknowledge consciously um but it's also quite obvious. Like when you look at the when you look at the genres of what's popular in porn, almost always it has to do with some type of violence. humiliation, yep. degradation of women, or violence towards women, or some type of um, you know subjugation, gangbang activity, yeah. some type of subjugation. Yep. And so, even on that level, just looking at pornography as um, an example of the the sentiment that is just below the surface and oftentimes not below the surface, oftentimes very overtly um, being represented in our consciousness around the world. It's, it's a very difficult thing to face that and to, to wrestle with that. And I think my heart in having these conversations and having conversations like with people like you Thank you, first of all, for just your courage and transparency and sharing from your own story is that these conversations would reach men and just. Sorry, Jason Katz, is that the name of the, oh, sorry, the fellow? So the education of a boy to be a man is not really about that. It's about teaching him not to be a girl. Oh, because, Jackson Katz. Ja thank you. Yeah. He's fantastic. I don't know if that was kind from him, but it made me think of him. He's incredible. Because once again, men have been socialized that calling a girl a woman, uh, calling another man a girl or a pussy is an insult. So the, even the word girl is an insult to them. So it's socializing again, okay? No male is born like that. We, we have to eradicate all of that. It, it's got to start. We got to go with the youth. And it has to be, it's systemic, this attitude, and it's systemic because they're socialized this way. Yeah. Okay? I, I, I don't want to say men are terrible because they can be, but they're, they were socialized that way. So we have to go to the root, absolute root. If, if the standard is, you know, treating people with love and respect and dignity, the question then becomes for us, and, and again, my primary message is to men, is, but I know this is very relevant for women too, because some of the most extreme examples of bullying that I have seen, shame, sexually, sexual-based, shame-based bullying is women on women. So, uh, and I would say in most cases and examples of like slut shaming and that kind of thing is, is women on women. But that's not, that's, uh, I, that is a, that is not, a book for me to write as a man. I know, but, but I wonder if it's the internalized well. misogyny because I think women, absolutely, they they have been socialized again to enable the patriarchal agenda under the guise of it being empowering because ugh, it gets so complex. It gets yeah. so complex. I just really, we just have to respect each other, but we've got to do that. We've got to teach them from birth. Yeah. And the question is like, if the standard is 
treating each other with love and respect and dignity and creating some kind of equality for us, then the question for me, because at some level these conversations have to become personalized. Yes. And the question for me is how and in what way have I participated in thinking about or speaking about or behaving in ways that are dishonoring, disrespectful, uh, you know, um, unloving towards women? And how, how, do I, how do I need to work on changing my own thinking? Um, I remember talking with a man named Tony Porter from A Call to Men, mm-hmm. and, and really kind of, he helped unearth this understanding of, you know, the, um, the kind of latent misogyny that we grow up with and becomes part of our subconscious without even realizing yep. it. Socializing, So it's yeah. not a question of if these um, issues are at work in me, it's more an issue of am I aware of them? Yes. And am I actively, yes. you know, <laughs> working on myself to overcome those? So at the John School, I address that. You know, I say to them, it's time for men to stand up and be counted. It's time, Trump put it really well, it's locker room humor. When you're in the locker room and somebody says something, you have to say that's not funny. We call it rape culture, we call it, and I, I know, and I say this to them, and I know you're gonna get pushback from your peers. They're gonna call you a girl. They're gonna call you pussy beaten or whipped. But in, in, can't you even begin for a second to imagine the pushback we've had? It's time, it's time, it's time for men to stand up and be counted for us. They have to because otherwise this world's not going to improve. And you are gonna lose friends. When we say no to a guy, we're terrified he could kill us. You're gonna lose a friend. We get killed when we say no. Please stand up, stand up and be counted. You have daughters coming up. Do you not, not want better? We want, women are just asking for quality of life. And I don't even want equality, I am equal. I want liberation. Yes, absolutely. Now, as we're kind of, you know, pulling this conversation about a part of it, um, I'm very curious because you live in Canada as to the indigenous population of people there and how they're affected by these dynamics. Because one of the things that's come up in this conversation is how the vulnerabilities of an individual contribute to their exploitation. And stories that I've heard coming out of Canada regarding the indigenous population are so disturbing. Is there anything, that any light that you can oh, shed yeah. on that situation? Well, the indigenous pop population uh, represents about 4.8% of our total population in Canada. And they represent over 50% of the victims. Oh my <coughs> yeah, goodness. It's, it's astonishing. 4.8% of the total population, uh, yes, and 50% of the victims. Over 50%. And that's Whoa. what's known, okay? And we know that the numbers are never... They're on the low end, always. Um, uh, this this staggering number of pe- victims coming from the indigenous communities, w- what do you think is happening there that's causing that? Like, why? Well, they're vulnerable already. So many, so much. So the reserves, there's no work. There's nothing there. So people drink because they're in, they're, there's poverty. And you've got many people living in one house, huge family, intergenerational trauma, going on because the 60s scoop was only a generation ago 
every indigenous person alive today is either a survivor or a first generation of a survivor. It is that close. It's that short a time ago. So the trauma is right there. It's not even historical. And then the predators are out there and the racism, well, even Disney makes Indians, and they're they're more lascivious, even in Disney. So again, people are socialized. So yeah, I'm going to buy her. She will be a good a good companion. I'm trying to be diplomatic here, okay? Um, and they're pushed onto the street because people don't want to house them. People don't want to give them housing because they're racist. It's it's systemic still. So the homelessness is also part of it. Is are there are traffickers consciously, oh, absolutely, and strategically preying on that absolutely. demographic? Absolutely, I yeah. see them at the shelters. They're so I I work exclusively full time with human trafficking victims. Those who have been are being or at high risk of. So I walk the streets too, and I can see who's at high risk, just like you say, and the group homes. And they pray, they, vo- they pray on them. They wait at the bus stations. They, they, what they're doing too is we know that a lot of the bottom girls are victims, okay? And they're sending the, these girls into the youth shelters to recruit back out. We are safe houses now. We are, so, some of them are catching on. In the first 30 days, um, a new woman because there are no male ones, which is a problem, can't interact with the other woman in the shelter for the first 30 days unless there's a staff member there because they're going in, the trackers are sending them in to recruit back out. Um, we see that in the youth shelters. We see that in any shelter, even the, uh, this, the um, domestic violence shelters, they're sending women in to recruit back out because that's where the vulnerable women are. They're ripe for the picking, so to speak. What do you think is the answer to to some of these? Men have to stop buying sex. Sorry. Yeah. And then people across the board need equal opportunity to education because a male who traffics wasn't born like that. He may have grown up in an environment where there is no educational opportunities and no employment opportunities. Daddy was a trafficker. Mommy was a trafficker. That's all they've ever known. I'm not making... It's the reason it's not an excuse, okay? But we have to look at everything as to why it happened. And that's what happens with them. That's why men buy sex, and that's why women are sold for sex. If you, you got to go to the root of all of it. It's, you know, it's interesting as we, like, pull these conversations apart um, and unpack some of the different layers to this issue of trafficking, because the answer always comes back to the same simple point, which is men have to stop participating in the purchasing of other humans for sex. It's really at a very foundational level what creates the environment for everything else and all the exploitation and all the destruction of human life that comes with it. And this is a very archetypal good versus evil issue that we're that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's very archetypal in the sense that this massive predator system of of destruction and injustice and exploitation is fueled by this one very simple thing. So it's a desire, it's not a need either. Right. It's, sex right. is not a human right. Food, water, air, safety and freedom are. Okay? You cannot die without sex. You can die without those others. So it is not a human right. Right. In Germany, of the 400,000 known people in the sex trade, 88% of them are trafficking victims. So legalization is not the answer. 
the only answer is, as you just said. Yeah. Men, stop buying sex. I think it's a good place to wrap our conversation. Um, and, you know, as a man, I, I feel so personally um, responsible um, to, to be a part of these conversations and to challenge uh, us men to do better, to practice self-control, to work on ourselves, to grow and develop a healthy sexuality and a healthy view of women. And um, I don't say that as somebody who has arrived and now I'm preaching down to everybody else. I say it fully aware that of my own capacity for these things. Beautiful. And so, Beautiful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I think the invitation for us as men is to stand in solidarity with our female sisters who are struggling right now with the world that we live in. And yeah, so thank you. No, thank you, and thank you, thank you, everybody, actually, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate the work you're doing and um, just wanna honor you, so thank you again for coming. You can check out all our podcast episodes, articles, and films at exoduscry.com and join the daily conversation by following Exodus Cry on all major social platforms.